Evening, everyone. Lovely to see you. Does anybody still need a Bible? If you do, please just wave and get one to you. I don't see any hands going up. I think we're okay. Uh, As Josh said, we're on page one in the Blue Bible, Genesis chapter one, halfway or so into our series, Truth for Life and Worship, Creation and the Creator. Creation and the Creator. Uh, Let me pray briefly. Our Father in heaven, we bow our hearts before you. We say, you are the one who knows. We come to receive from you. We come to be instructed, so instruct us. Correct us where our thinking is wrong. Encourage us where we are downhearted. Tune our hearts to sing your praise. Strengthen our hope in Jesus, our surety of the future. In all things, Father, cause us to cling more tightly to your mercy and your grace shown in Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 From verse 1 of chapter 1 to verse 3 of chapter 2, Genesis tells the account of creation. The seven days from let there be light through to thus the heavens and the earth were finished and God rested. Uh, One intellectual of the early 19th century wrote, and I quote, the first page of Genesis is of greater consequence than all the writings of scientists and philosophers put together. The first chapter of Genesis, the first page is of greater consequence. It is more important than all the writings of the world's greatest intellectuals through all the ages put together. And he was right. Genesis chapter one is that important. But why? Why is the doctrine of creation, the creator, so important? Well, that's the approach we're going to take this evening. We're going to think about why the doctrine of creation is so important. I think it'll be helpful for us to ask the question in two different ways. First, why does the biblical teaching about creation matter objectively? Let me try this again. Maybe if you can just click forward for me, if you don't mind, and I'll signal from time to time. Perfect, thanks. Um, Why does the teaching about creation matter objectively? And second, why does it matter for you and me personally? So that's how we'll take it this evening. Two questions, why does it matter objectively and why does it matter for you and me personally? So our first question, why does the teaching of the Bible about creation matter objectively? Why does it matter whether you or I believe it or not? Whether you or I like it or not? Whether presidents, prime ministers and parliaments like it or not? Whether school and university and college science faculties believe it and like it or not. And the first part of the answer is simply this. Because the biblical teaching on creation is true and it describes reality as it is. If we try to understand anything about this world or about life in this world in any way other than the way the Bible teaches, then nothing makes any sense at all. 
When the Bible's plain teaching about creation is rejected, we end up with all sorts of absurdities. And it's not difficult to see those absurdities all around us these days. In the Genesis account of creation, we encounter all the big and important questions of life. All the questions that must be asked and answered in order to form a complete and a coherent worldview. We find all the truths, the great truths that must be received and must be submitted to in order for life and society and the world to function properly. Genesis 1 answers the great theological question, who is God? He is the creator. He is distinct from his creation. He is the uncaused cause. He is the, he is the one who depends upon nothing and upon whom all else depends. If you were with us for the first session of Firm Foundations uh, almost a month ago now, you may remember this quote. He is the unbounded sea of being. Who is God? He is the creator. Genesis 1 answers the ontological question. What is the nature of creation's being and existence? Well, the clue is in the name, creation. The world and we who dwell upon it all the stars, the galaxies, it is all created. It all had a beginning. It is all made stuff. It is all dependent. We are utterly dependent on God, our creator. The Bible tells us that he upholds it all by the word of his power. Our friends, that is an awesome thought. Think about that. There is no reason, apart from God's upholding, why you and I should still exist one second from now. I'm not talking about dying, I'm talking about not being. <laughs> if you could divide a second into a hundred parts, and then each of those parts into another hundred, and another hundred, and another, you would never come to one instant where you or any other thing existed independently of his upholding. The power that spoke all creation into being is the same power that upholds all creation in existence every moment. The creator upholds. Genesis 1 answers the great teleological question, the question of purpose. What is this whole grand creation for? Well, it's for his glory. Where do we see that in Genesis 1? Well, we see it in two ways. First, in the goodness of creation. Seven times we hear God's assessment. It was good. It was good. It was good. In the end, it was very good. And we know that from the testimony of our own eyes, that the heavens declare his glory. And so do the birds and the flowers and the mountains and the rivers. We see the glory of the creator also in the seventh day rest. All, all of creation brought to completion in the seventh day. It's a picture of the bringing to completion of all God's purposes. And all his purposes, the Bible tell, tells us, are ultimately to the praise of his glory. Genesis 1 answers the anthropological question, the great question of our day. What is man? We are created beings. Created in his image, male and female, equal in dignity, different by design, complementary in life and function. Genesis 1 answers 
the matrimonial question. What is marriage? It is the exclusive union of one male man and one female woman for life. Genesis 1 answers the sociological question. How is human society designed to work? It's an ordered community of mutual and complementary service. Genesis 1 answers the epistemological question, the question of knowledge. How do we know what we know? How can we trust our knowledge to be true? On what basis can we know that what we believe to be true is in fact true? Because he tells us. He reveals, we receive. Genesis 1 answers the eschatological question, the question of ultimate destiny. Where is history heading? What is the ultimate goal and destination of all things? All creation is being directed towards the goal for which he made it. The display of his glory in both judgment and salvation. The everlasting punishment of the wicked. The everlasting outpouring of the riches of his grace and kindness towards us who are in Christ. We could go on. We could talk about how the biblical doctrine of creation is the only possible foundation for a just legal system, for an honest and sustainable economy, for sound educational policy and practice. We could go on, but the point is this. There is not one single aspect of human life, individual or social, that does not depend for its proper functioning on the biblical doctrine of creation. That's the point. Why does the doctrine of creation matter objectively? Ultimately, the biblical doctrine of creation matters because it teaches us the most important truth of all. We live in his world and on his terms. We live in his world on his terms. If you can maybe just click that forward for me, thank you. The God of Genesis 1 made it all. Everything that exists was created by him and is upheld and sustained by him. Nothing that exists exists independently of him. All things that exist exist for his glory. There is no part, no part of life and reality that is apart from him. Every ology belongs to him. Theology, anthropology, ontology, biology, sociology, you list them all, they are his. Every aspect of human and cosmological existence belongs to him. It is all his. He is the maker of all things, he is the sustainer of all things, he is the alpha and the omega, he's the beginning and the end. All reality belongs to him, nothing can exist apart from him. Nothing makes any sense at all apart from him. He is the creator. This is his world. We live in his world on his terms. This is objectively true. And all proper implications of it are objectively true. Men and women, boys and girls, kings and nations can deny it all they like. They can pretend it is not his world. And all the raging of the world against him is but the shrieking of a tiny angry bug at the vast mighty Himalayas. 
I had a little chuckle to myself when Josh prayed a moment ago. Nothing wrong with your prayer. I've said the same thing a hundred times, but I just thought about it. Prayed for those in power in this world. For those in power. Who has all power in this world? I know what Josh meant, and I've prayed the same, and so have you. (laughs) There's that scene in the movie, um, I've just forgotten the name of the movie. Morgan Freeman is God. Um, Evan Almighty, thanks. Um, Where, what's the guy's name? Evan, the actor, (laughs) is talking with Morgan Freeman under the tree. And uh, he says something about, but, you know, um, God, those weren't my plans. And Morgan Freeman just laughs at him. Your plans? (laughs) Made me think the same. We pray for those in power in this world. We know what we mean. We talk, we think of those whose decisions, whose, um, whose actions one way or another influence many. But who holds all power in this world? It's his. This is his world. We live in it on his terms. Why does the doctrine of creation matter? Ultimately, objectively, the biblical doctrine of creation matters because it puts us on our knees before the throne of the creator. And that means that our second question, how does the biblical teaching about creation matter for you and me personally, is a life or death question. Now to answer that question, We need to step back from Genesis 1 and remind ourselves of the broader context. If you're using one of the Blue Church Bibles, keep your finger in Genesis 1 where you are, and also turn ahead to page 173. That's um, Deuteronomy chapter 31. Page 173, Deuteronomy chapter 31. Look with me from verse 9 to verse 13. Then Moses wrote this law. Let's pause there. Now that word law is the Hebrew word Torah. Torah. The word Torah can be used in two senses. Um, In one sense, Torah is the divine law or teaching that Israel as a nation was called to live by in terms of the covenant that God made with them. Through Moses. In another sense, the Torah um, refers to the first five books of the Old Testament, the books that Moses wrote. Right? So we could say it this way Torah is both the body of covenant teaching and the history in which that covenant teaching was given. Right? Now, that's what that word law means when we see it here in Deuteronomy 31 in this passage. So back to verse 9. Moses wrote this law, this Torah, the first five books of the Bible, that bit that you're holding between your fingers from Genesis 1 to to Deuteronomy 31. That's the Torah. And he gave it to the priests, the sons of Levi, who carried the ark of the covenant of the Lord uh, and to all the elders of Israel. And Moses commanded them at the end of every seven years at the set time in the year of release, at the Feast of Booths, when all Israel comes to appear before the Lord your God, at the place he will choose, you shall read this Torah before all Israel in their hearing. Assemble the people, men, women, and little ones, the sojourner within your towns, 
that they may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God and be careful to do all the words of this Torah and that their children who have not known it may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God as long as you live in the land that you are going over the Jordan to possess. What's the point he's making? Why are we reading this? Two reasons. First, let me turn there as well. First, because, there we are, Moses wrote this, Genesis 1, to people who lived here, right? What we read, what Josh read for us, was written to people living here, right? Moses wrote the account of creation in Genesis 1 for people who lived many thousands of years later in Deuteronomy between 1446 and 1406 BC. And that's important. 1446 is the year of the Exodus from Egypt. They spent 40 years wandering in the wilderness, right? That's how we get those dates. Second, notice the logic of the text. Moses wrote the Torah, verse 9. The people were commanded to read the Torah, verse 11, and to live according to the Torah, verse 12, so that they would learn to fear the Lord, verse 12, and so that they would live in the land over the Jordan, verse 13. Moses is writing Genesis chapter 1 to the people of Israel who have just been rescued from more than 400 years of slavery in Egypt. And he's writing it to them so that they would know the Lord and live in trusting obedience to him as they entered the promised land over the River Jordan. And we need to remember the history here. Centuries before this, centuries before Deuteronomy, about 500 years before, a terrible famine struck the whole region. The people of Israel relocated from Canaan to Egypt, where Pharaoh provided for them from the huge grain stores he had accumulated prior to the famine. So the people of Israel survived the famine in Egypt. But the Pharaoh that had welcomed them into Egypt died. And he was succeeded by another Pharaoh and another and so on and so on. And over time, the Pharaohs and the people of Israel grew increasingly hostile towards the growing nation of Israel. And eventually, Egypt forced the people of Israel into hard slavery. After 430 years in Egypt, God sent Moses to rescue Israel from Egypt and bring them back to Canaan. The rescue from Egypt was spectacular and miraculous. God unleashed a series of plagues upon Egypt, which we'll talk more about in a moment. But first we must remember an important fact of ancient Egyptian religion. Pharaoh was thought to be the human embodiment of Ra, the Egyptian god of the sun. Pharaoh believed himself to be divine. Now, with that background, before we go further, let's just remind ourselves of the question we're trying to answer. Our first question was, why does the Bible's teaching about creation matter objectively? And the answer, knowing the truth about creation matters, ultimately, because it puts us on our knees before the Creator. Our second question, why does knowing the truth about creation and its Creator matter for you and me personally? And we're busy laying the foundation for the answers to that second question. And the point I'm making is this. 
in order to know what the truth about creation and the creator matters for you and me personally, we need to know why Moses taught about creation and the creator to the people of Israel after their exodus from Egypt. Now remember, Israel had spent 40 years in the wilderness. During that time, Moses wrote this all down. But he would have spent countless nights telling this around the fire, telling the history of creation, the history of the covenants, the history of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to one group after another. So many afternoons sitting under the shade of a tree, teaching the children and the grandchildren of Israel. The key for us is to remember that Moses taught all of this to a people who had just been released from Egypt. They had just witnessed the plagues. And what happened in the plagues? Yahweh, the God of Israel, the great I am, showed his absolute and sovereign power over all created things. He who said, let there be light, unmade the light. He who made waters to sustain all life on earth, unmade the waters of Egypt. He who said, let the earth bring forth plants and fruits and all sorts of vegetation, unmade the crops of Egypt by hail and locusts. He who said, let the earth bring forth livestock, unmade all the horses and the donkeys and the camels and the herds and the flocks of Egypt. He who made man of the dust of the ground breathed the breath of life into his nostrils, unmade all the firstborn of Egypt. In the plagues, Yahweh declared, I am the maker and I can unmake it all. So how does the truth that God is creator matter for you personally? Friend, because only those who trust in the mercy of the creator shall escape the great unmaking that is coming. The unmaking of creation is a picture of the great coming judgment of the Lord on all sinners. The people of Israel were no better than the people of Egypt. They were spared judgment only because they trusted in the mercy of the Creator by painting the blood of a Passover lamb on the doorposts of their houses on that awful night three and a half thousand years ago, the night the Lord unmade all the firstborn of Egypt. And just as the unmaking of creation pointed forward toward the coming judgment, so the Passover lamb pointed forward to Jesus Christ, the lamb who takes away the sin of the world. Friend, it is only by faith in Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, it's only by trust in God's word that his death paid the price for your sin that you will be spared on the coming judgment day. That's the first reason why knowing the truth about creation and the creator matters. He has set a day for the great unmaking and you and I will be spared only if he finds us sheltering under the blood of Jesus Christ, the lamb who came to take away the sin of the world. 
The second reason, knowing the truth about creation and the creator matters. The doctrine of creation teaches us that we were made by God and for relationship with God. You created my inmost being, says the psalmist. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful, I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place. When I was woven together in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. Do you know that you are handmade by the Creator? Hear the imagery the, psalm, the psalmist uses. God knit you together. My, uh, my Nonna, Nonna is Italian for granny. My Nonna used to knit. Um, I remember watching her knit. It's detailed work. She followed a pattern. She chose the wool, this thickness, this color, how to mix them together, working attentively with her fingers, pulling something out if it went wrong, doing it again. It's detailed, caring work. Do you not like your nose? Yeah. <laughs> now, forgive me for taking some liberty here. I am a husband and a father of two daughters um, and have two younger sisters. I know something about I'm going to claim to know something about how girls think. <laughs> Do you not like the way you look in those jeans? Or the way your hair does or doesn't do whatever you want it to do? Do you not like your skin? Do you wish you looked more like her or less like her? Do you wish you were taller or shorter? God knit you together. He made you that way. And he said it was very good. To my brothers, <laughs> do you wish you had different talents? Do you wish you could make money like Elon Musk? or kick a ball like whoever kicks a ball well. <laughs> or drive a car like Lewis Hamilton. Or we're better at maths or woodwork or whatever. I, this certainly doesn't only apply to guys, just like the looks thing doesn't only apply to women. But you know, God made you the way he made you, with your talents, with your skills, with your aptitudes. If you're good at this and not that, don't covet that thing. Don't wish he had made you different. God knit you together, knit you together this way. The skills, the talents, the aptitudes, the interests he's given you, the opportunities he's given you, the days ordained for you that were written in his book before one came to be, 
Those were done with attention, with care, with love. Handcrafted for you. You are handmade, one of a kind, knit together by the Creator. And you were made for relationship with Him. Verse 27 of chapter 1, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female. Books upon books upon books have been written about what it means that we were made in the image of God. We don't have time to dig into the details tonight, but let's not miss the main thing. It means you were made, created for a relationship with God. God made you to know him. Oak trees don't have a relationship with God. Foxes and sparrows and horses and crabs don't have a relationship with God. They cannot. He didn't make them to. They were not made in his image in such a way that they could know him and in some way be like him and enjoy him and love him and co-labor with him as sons and daughters. But you are made that way and you are made for that relationship. If you are in Christ, the spirit of Christ dwells in you teaching you from the inside out to love the things that your father loves, to hate the things your father hates, and to be about your father's business in the world. What great fellowship, what communion we have with the creator to be about caring for his creation. You were created by God for God. Right, our question, why, how does knowing the truth about creation and the creator matter personally? We looked at two reasons. We could pull out dozens from this passage, couldn't we? But I'm just going to look at one more. The third reason why it matters, for those who are in Christ, the doctrine of creation teaches us that the creator starts what he f- finishes, what he starts. <laughs> Moses taught uh, the doctrine of creation to a people who were on the way from Egypt to the promised land. A pilgrim people rescued from slavery and on the way to the land flowing with milk and honey. The land of abundant life, satisfaction and sweetness. The land where the death of slavery and genocide would give way to abundant life. Where the long centuries of bitter servitude would give way to sweetness. But the journey from the land of bitterness to the land of sweetness was long and weary. Many days there would have been during those long years of wilderness wandering when some would have been tempted to despondency. Are we ever really going to get there? Will this long and weary desert season ever end? (coughs) Will I really see the sweet land? Just as Yahweh completed his project of creation, Moses was saying to them, just as the the account of creation ends with the words, thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and on the seventh day God rested, so Yahweh will bring his promise, sorry, will complete his promise of bringing you into the promised land, the land of sweetness on the far side of the Jordan. 
My brothers and sisters in Christ, you are God's new creation. The God of creation is the same God of new creation. And we can be sure of this, just as he completed his work of creation in Genesis 1 and 2, just as he brought Israel across the Jordan into their promised land, so he will complete his work of new creation and bring you into the heavenly promised land. All your bitter days will be forgotten in the sweet land flowing with milk and honey. He will see you home. Let's bring this to a close for tonight. Why does the Bible's teaching about creation matter objectively? Because the truth of creation puts us face to face with the reality of the creator. And the only place sinful creatures belong before his throne is on our knees begging mercy. What difference does knowing the truth about the creator make for you and me personally? The maker has set a day for the great unmaking. Shelter under the blood of Jesus Christ, the Passover lamb. Receive with thanksgiving and joy the body and the mind, the opportunities that he has knitted together just for you. Receive with thanksgiving how he made you, who he made you to be. Enjoy and pursue communion with him. If you don't know how, ask someone to help you. Ask your home group leader. Ask one of the elders or the deacons. Ask one of your older brothers and sisters in Christ who have walked decades with him to show you how. Finally, rest in the knowledge that the creator finishes what he starts. He will see you home. Soon your eyes will rest upon the green and beautiful land. Soon you will taste the sweetness of his presence. Let's pray.